KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff. Insurance salesman, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yes, I killed him. I killed him for money, for a woman. And I didn't get the money, and I didn't get the woman. Yep, that pretty much sums up film noir. And we're going to travel into that shadowy, treachery-laden terrain for the month of November. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Femme fatales, private dicks, wooden kimonos, welcome to the world of film noir. The term was coined by French film critics to describe a style of cinema rooted in hard-boiled crime fiction of the 1940s. It revealed a cynicism that challenged audiences with something new, a world where women used sex to get what they wanted, where betrayal and deceit were to be expected, and murder was a given. Classic noir is usually defined as films made between 1941 and the late 1950s. The term literally means black film, and the darkness comes not just from the visual look, but also from the dark motives of the characters. I need to take one quick break before talking with Eddie Muller, host of TCM's Noir Alley and the founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation. He's just revised and expanded his book, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, and we'll be discussing that, as well as all things noir, right after this break. Oh, yeah, I'm looking for a good mystery on something off the beaten track like the Maltese Falcon. Oh, that was a fascinating story. But here's one that has everything the Falcon had and more. It's Raymond Chandler's latest bestseller, The Big Sleep. What a picture that'll make. Mind if I look at it? Sometimes I wonder what strange fate brought me out of the storm to that house that stood alone in the shadows. As I probed into its mysteries, every clue told me a different story. But each had the same ending. Murder. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome back. I'm thrilled to have Eddie Muller, host of TCM's Noir Alley, back on the podcast. Eddie is known as the czar of noir. So to start our discussion, I asked him to define noir and what he thinks a film needs to have to be classified as one. Well, this is the $64 million question, adjusted for inflation. They are crime movies from the mid-20th century. By and large, that's what they are. But they're very unique because they have a vision and a style and a language that is indicative of that era. And they came out of an organic artistic movement that existed for no reason other than the artists wanted to do it. There was no real economic reason for it. The films weren't like colossal money makers. I mean, if you go back and look, there's no noir film that was like the most popular film of the year in 1946 or 47. There were hits, like The Postman Always Rings Twice and Gilda. Didn't hear about me, Gabe. If I'd been a ranch, they would have named me the bar nothing. There never was a woman like Gilda. It was a movement. They made money. They were made cheaply. 
relatively, but they have stood the test of time. So, so by and large, we're talking about crime movies, but obviously we'll go beyond that and discuss, you know, why they were unique and not like crime movies of an earlier era or a later era necessarily. But for me, Beth, the, the key to what made noir so unique and special and a bit subversive in Hollywood of that era was that it was the first time that the people who were doing the wrong thing were the protagonists of the film. Right, in Double Indemnity, it's Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it, and I'm going to help you. To me, looking at it from a writer's perspective, that's what really makes something noir. A crime movie in which the central character is a police officer trying to run a crook to ground and you spend most of the movie with that law enforcement officer who's trying to do the right thing, that's not a film noir. <laughs> right? The, the film noir is where that officer gets tempted into becoming a criminal just like the guy he's pursuing and it's usually for a woman and uh, and then everything goes to hell and it all turns out badly. That, that Then you're talking film noir. Why do you make me do it? You know you're going to talk. I'm going to make you talk. I always make you punks talk. Why do you do it? Why? Why? So what originally got you hooked on noir and how far back does that go for you? It goes back to when I used to cut school and watch Dialing for Dollars on KTVU-TV in Oakland, California. Hello everyone and welcome to our Dialing for Dollars movie. I joke about this a lot, but it's absolutely true. There was no videotape or anything like that when I first started watching these movies. So you had to be very diligent, and I would buy the TV Guide every week. This week in TV Guide. And then I'd go through and I'd highlight all the movies that had night, city, street, or big in the title. I don't know how big fit in there, but everything was like the big combo, the big steel, the big knife, the big night, the, you know, the big carnival. Maybe you'll even take me out for a big evening, huh? Why don't you wash that platinum out of your hair? Those all turned out to be pretty noirish. So that was it. I was just like this nocturnal beast, you know, that I loved movies set at night in the big city, and that was just my thing. Well, I think for me, the thing that always appealed to me about noir is how contemporary they still feel. And part of that to me is that they were willing to look at the dark side of things and the moral ambiguity and not try to be tapping into the particular mores of that time because when you're promoting something that's popular in the 1930s as a political or social point of view it tends to get dated but if you're looking at the darker side of people who are making bad choices and going against the status quo or the you know whatever's considered right or moral you know i can't tell you his name it ain't ethical yeah sure you and me both were up to our ears in ethics those films really tend to stay fresh and contemporary and that's one of the things i really love about noir well, in many ways, that film noir movement is where America, at least in terms of popular entertainment, it's where America sort of lost its innocence. Uh, we had won the war, so we, were, we knew we were the good guys, 
But then we started exploring what really happened here that caused the Great Depression, and what you know, and and now that America had come out on the winning side, artists were liberated to kind of question things at home that they couldn't do during the Depression or during World War II, because you weren't doing your part to you know boost morale and all that. So it was very timely. In that regard, and and yeah, I completely agree with you that the film, more than a lot of other types of movies made in Hollywood,、uh, noir has sort of retained its bite. Al- although we should discuss an, a, a very odd aspect of all of this is, as you pointed out, these were contemporary films in the time they were made. Right? We look at them now, and sometimes people can get a little confused, thinking they're watching a period piece. They have to remember that these were not period pieces when they were made. They were the contemporary thrillers and crime movies of their day. You know, the the way we look at something today is indicative of our time. That's what these films were for for their era, and it's just important to remember that. And you can see all the factors that kind of lead into making, you know, why noir happened when it did. And you wrote a book on noir back in. It was first published in 1998, called Dark City. And I, I love. I, I can't remember if this is the first line in it in the introduction or in the, the、uh, beginning of the book. But you say film noirs were distress flares launched into America's movie screens by artists working the night shift at the Dream Factory. And that seems to sum it up fairly well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But but that is that's kind of what it was, you know. I, I always think of it as the flip side of the Hollywood myth. You know, everybody was familiar with Hollywood movies at that time, you know, trying to sell reassurance, and and people sometimes found them corny because everything had to turn out happily ever after in the end, and you know, send them home happy. Well. Goodbye, everybody. Don't worry about me. I might have gotten in a lot of complications in my life, but that was when I was just practically a kid. Now I see everything much clearer now. I'm never going to make any more mistakes. And noir did just the opposite. It sent him home with a lot of doubt and angst and fear that things are not going to turn out well, and that maybe the system doesn't work quite as well as you think it does. And that's what these artists were doing. And To me, it's endlessly fascinating because, like I said at the top, nobody was asking them to do this. It just emerged organically, and all the different crafts and artists got involved. I mean, from the writers to the directors to the cinematographers to the art directors, and especially the actors. Because none of this would have happened if the actors didn't sort of lead the way. Because that's who people are paying money to see, right? I don't mind if you don't like my manners. I don't like them myself. They're pretty bad. I grieve over them long winter evenings, and I don't mind you ritzing me or drinking your lunch out of a bottle. But don't waste your time trying to cross-examine me. People don't talk to me like that. Oh. You know, Humphrey Bogart. You cannot. Overstate his importance to the film noir movement because he made that sort of cynical antihero so popular and so attractive to the American public.、Uh, and Bogart went through the 1940s kind of playing both sides of the fence. He was a good guy in a lot of movies, but then he would play villainous characters as well. And no actor could convey cynicism and idealism. 
simultaneously the way Bogart did, right? I mean, obviously we think of Casablanca as like the ultimate example of that. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. But that's a character he played a lot. That kind of became his stock and trade, you know? And he wasn't afraid to, to you know, like Fred C. Dobbs in The Treasure of Sierra Madre. I, it has kind of a noir heart, but I wouldn't call it a film noir necessarily. All right, to make it clear to a dumbhead like you, we take all his goods and go straight up north and leave the old jackass flat. You aren't serious, are you? You don't really mean what you're saying. Fred C. Dobbs don't say nothing he don't mean. That's a fairly despicable character that he was courageous enough to play once he was a big star. Now, when you wrote Dark City in 1998, it was a different landscape back then, and you have now revised the book. So what kind of prompted you to write it in the first place, and, and why a revision now? I was prompted to write it in the first place because I really loved these movies. Uh, that first book was successful enough that St. Martin said, what do you got up your sleeve now? And I said, I want to do a book about, about film noir. And I felt that most of the books that I had read on the subject were very, very academic. Some were quite good, like Foster Hirsch's book, The Dark Side of the Screen. So I wanted to write about these movies in a different kind of a way. And, and there was a book that I had read by Jeffrey O'Brien called The Phantom Empire that was a very heady book about cinema, about the, the history of movies. But I loved that he took a totally different approach to writing about films. And so I said, that, that's what I want to do. And so the idea was, because there's a similarity in, in noir, they're, they're big city movies, they're crime movies, you could very easily, or I could at least, imagine that all these stories are happening in one big mythological city. And, and that's Dark City, right? And, and so I created a a metropolis in which I could discuss all of these movies. And then what prompted the revision now? Is it, um, were you just re-inspired to go back and visit these films again? Well, several things. The success of the first book led to my being invited to program film festivals and things sort of based on the book. And that whole notion of it being the lost world of film noir had kind of a double meaning because not only did it speak to the alienation that you find in the films themselves, but in some cases I, I was doing this archaeology, which I now call noirchaeology, and I felt like, you know, some of these movies might never be seen again because I was watching them on, you know, videotapes that I got from people that I didn't even know across the country. You said, oh yeah, I recorded this one time off television for, you know, 20 years ago. And that was my only source for watching some of these movies. So I really thought the first time around that I was writing about films that nobody was gonna see again. And then when, it, when I was asked to program festivals, I'd say, let's see if this movie still exists. And in many cases, they didn't. We couldn't find a print of these films. And so after a few years, I became obsessed with this idea of, well, if the festivals are going to make money, let's use the profits to create a foundation that tracks down and restores these missing films. And we did that in 2005. So it's, 
damn, it's been 16 years already. But I'm proud to say, you know, that we've either restored or preserved over 30 movies in that time. And the revised edition of my book, I was able to incorporate a number of those films that I had to leave out of the first edition because I couldn't see the movie. I couldn't, I couldn't find Too Late for Tears or Woman on the Run or Cry Danger or Trapped or The Man Who Cheated Himself. They told me the woman I wanted was no good for me. And as things turned out, they were right. But I'd do it all over again as long as she was the woman. I'm the woman. I usually get what I want because I've got the money to buy it. I'd even kill a man. That was the only way. I didn't want to believe that my own brother might be guilty of the most desperate act a man might commit for a woman. And yet, what was I to do? The proof was in my hands that he'd not only cheated the law, he'd cheated himself. They had just vanished. You know, that, that, that was a big part of it. And then having written the book, it put me in a position where I had so much more to learn. And you never stop, right? You never stop learning about this stuff. Now, now I am coming to understand that this was not a particularly American phenomenon. These movies were being made all over the world. America was inspiring a lot of it, but there was a cross-pollination that happened. And so you learn this, and now, now I'm fascinated by hunting down noir films that look and feel just like the noir films we know from Hollywood, but they're from South America, or they're from Japan, or India even. <laughs> And I, I just think that is absolutely fascinating. One of the things I really like about the book is how you break it up into the different chapters. Because I think people, when they think of noir, sometimes have this kind of monolithic image of noir. Like, it's all the same. There, There's always a femme fatale. There's always this... And while there, there are definitely stylistic elements that tie them all together and thematic elements, they really do break up into these kind of subcategories that are really interesting. And I love some of these titles that you have, like Sinister Heights and Knockover Square and Loser's Lane. Talk about how you decided to break this up. And, and did you feel like this was a, a slightly different approach to how noir was being covered? I come at it as a writer. I mean, it was when you read Dark City, I think, especially if you read it back when it was published in 1998, you could see that there was a novelist at work there. I mean, it was always my goal to write fiction. I had never really imagined that I would write a film history book. But, you know, because my love was crime fiction and I love Hammett and Chandler and all those guys. And I said, well, what if I wrote a, a film book that sort of captured that spirit and that style? And, and, and this came, Beth, from a very, very practical research angle. I tried to set aside academic works that might influence my approach to, to these films. Instead, I, I tried to find as much stuff written at the time as possible so I could see what did people actually think of these movies when they were being made and when they were being released. I, d I wanted to kind of lose the hindsight 
And one of the things that I encountered were a bunch of exhibitors' manuals from the noir era, from like 1948 and 49. And these were magazines that were published in Hollywood by the studios that went out to theater owners to like sell their wares. Like, this is what you've got coming up and this, you know. And it was fascinating to see, number one, how the studios themselves talked about these films. They never used the term noir. That was impossible. They called them either crime thrillers or murder dramas. And when I started making lists of, well, these are the, the murder dramas and these are the crime thrillers, it became apparent that there was a distinction in that the crime thrillers were like cops and robbers movies, right? So you can imagine the kiss of death and cry of the city and the asphalt jungle. Make your way up the back stairs and jump the alarm system. That'll take another three minutes. At exactly 11.54, Dix and I will come to the back door. You open it for us. I'll be waiting for you. Good. These are crime thrillers, murder dramas, our double indemnity, the postman always rings twice, the reckless moment. B, where were you? What's the matter? What happened? Baby, calm down, calm down. Who was it? It was Jim. I'm you. Oh, mother, you were right. I know, I know. I never should have gone. All right, all right. Just try to tell me what happened. I, I was on the boat outside. I, I, all he did want was the money. I hate him. Oh, my dear, where is he now? I don't know. I love you. You go on upstairs. I'll be up in a minute. Movies in which normal people are committing the crimes, you know, amateurs. So it became obvious to me that, wow, crime thrillers are about, are about professionals and murder dramas are about amateurs. And, and I was just fascinated by that. And also by the fact that so many of the letters to, to the studios from exhibitors out in rural areas did not like these movies. And it was like, stop making them. Please stop making them. You're scaring everybody into thinking that, you know, there's this cancer in the in the culture and the big cities are are cesspools of, you know, vice and corruption. Oh, and now we we know better now. But uh, <laughs> that that was really what was driving it. And I was fascinated by all that. So I I funneled that all into the book. I need to take one last break, and then I'll be back with Eddie Muller to continue our discussion of film noir with a look at his chapter called Sinister Heights, featuring actor John Garfield. According to Felix, I'm supposed to introduce myself. Mickey Borden. I guess your aunt, uh, aunt something or other. Etta. Etta. Yep. Name fits right in with those curtains in that hub. Domestic. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome back. Let's pick up my discussion with Eddie Muller by looking to his chapter called Sinister Heights, where he highlights one of my favorite actors, John Garfield. My dad introduced me to Garfield in the film Four Daughters. I was fascinated by him because he wasn't your typical Hollywood star. He had this gruff cynicism combined with charisma and sex appeal. Rug on the floor, smell of cooking in the kitchen, piano and flowers. 
It's homes like these that are the backbone of the nation. Where's the spinning wheels? I think I think he tends to get overlooked because he's he's such an important figure in Hollywood history, and the fact that he was like the Pied Piper that led the whole group theater crowd to Hollywood from New York, and he was a New York kid, a street kid, and he he was so identifiably Jewish to the Jewish audience. You know, he was as Jewish as Jimmy Cagney was Irish to to America at that time. You know. And that was really important. And when he did The Postman Always Rings Twice, the fact that a, a street kid like that, a Jewish street kid like that, would be having an affair with like the ultimate chicks of all time, you know, Lana Turner. That's <laughs> a you you can't top that. You drop this. Thanks. So that that's uh, an undercurrent in all of that that I think was really really strong at the time. I don't know how people watching the film today would read that, but I can guarantee you that it it was duly noted at the time. Well, I just remember, you know, I was probably like in elementary school or maybe junior high and seeing four daughters. And I just remember, you know, there's the, you know, Priscilla Lane plays this beautiful, charming, very suburban kind of character. And I forgot if it was her aunt or her mother, but I remember she serves tea. Well, you needn't look so noble. Tea is only a little hot water. And I just remember thinking, like, this isn't the kind of thing I normally see. <laughs> and um, I remember in Body and Soul, too, at the end, you know, it's that line, like, you know, you're going to kill me? Eh. Everybody dies. What an attitude. <laughs> Everybody dies. Yeah, fantastic. Obviously, I included him in the book, not just because of his artistic achievements and, and what that all meant in Hollywood, but, you know, he had a he had a tragic story. And, and you know, if you read the book, you know that I kind of choose to, to focus on certain people because they did have backgrounds or life stories that sort of could have been a film noir themselves, you know. And Garfield's persecution by the House Un-American Activities Committee and the fact that he died at only 39 years of age, you know, it, it's just such a sad story and, and how much he meant to so many people and how many people he, you know, gave a start to in the business and how artistically ambitious he was because, you know, these days it's it's not uncommon for actors when they get popular to just, you know, start their production company and dive right in and, you know, but it's much more prevalent today because Hollywood is not as centralized as it used to be. When Garfield started Enterprise Pictures, I mean, he was basically saying, I'm going to compete with these studios. He had to work with them to get the films distributed. But he was basically saying, I have a better way to make pictures. That was early. That was like 1946 to say that. Uh, was pretty brazen. Took a lot of guts. If you need a broken man to love, break your husband. I'm not a nickel. I don't spend my life in a telephone. If that's what you want for love, you can't use me. One of your other chapters has a lovely description here. This is Hate Street, the Randy region of ruined relationships. And I like the way you highlight somebody that's very iconic, Joan Crawford, but you give her a little different spin because you call her the actress as auteur. What if I do want them to amount to something? 
I'll do anything for those kids. Do you understand anything? Yeah? Well, you can't do their crying for them. I'll do that, too. They'll never do any crying if I can help it. Never overlook the fact that it is the performers that the public pays to see, right? And, and so much film scholarship, rightly, focuses on the directors to the exclusion of writers and performers. And, you know, as Francois Truffaut said, it's about actors. I mean, that's what the audience wants to see. They want to see these people. And Joan Crawford, to me, is such a fascinating character. And I did feel a little bit like I want to reclaim her. You know, she became such a campy icon. Don't you go in that room! Joan Crawford in a shattering screen portrayal. A frantic woman pressured by straitjacket tension. Leave me alone! And then after Mommy Dearest, you know, the die was cast. No! And it was like, well, you know, I'm going to do what I can to sort of suggest to, you know, younger people that before you laugh at Joan Crawford's later movies. <laughs> consider who she really was in Hollywood and how much power she wielded in Hollywood. She was an incredibly dominant and dominating personality in the business. She essentially was the producer of all of her movies after Mildred Pierce. And I just think it's a story that isn't really told and she doesn't get her due in that regard. It's hard for this culture to, to accept this, but you can be many things. It's not one or the other. You, you can kind of be a somewhat of a laughing stock for your later movies. And still be a really good actress and a really strong producer and have really good taste and stuff. You know, it's not impossible to be those many things. And and Joan Crawford was that. She was she she was many things. Yes, she kept reinventing herself to keep her career going. Which uh, every performer in the world will tell you that's what you have to do. You know, sometimes you, it, it veers into embarrassment, as it did for Joan Crawford. A nightmare of suspense pushes you closer and closer to your shock limit as Joan Crawford finds menace in every shadow. But I don't think that that in any way should denigrate the work that she did before that. So that, that's what I tried to explain in that chapter. I want to highlight one more chapter before we talk about some films specifically, but Psych Ward was interesting because although I have seen a lot of those films, I never consciously kind of thought of this category of noir in which the characters had these kind of, that these characters were veterans that were vexed with problems. And I liked the way you highlighted that because it did give kind of, it made me look at the noir films that I'd seen in kind of a fresh way. Yeah, it's very it's interesting because so many um, there there were a number of these films, and that's what what we were saying earlier about these movies were 
contemporary. They were dealing with issues of the day. And in, I mean, the best years of our lives, obviously, is one of the greatest American movies ever made. And it's about specifically, you know, the difficulty of soldiers reintegrating into normal life. Come on, the rest of you guys. Fred. Come on, get out. Fred, wake up. Kadorsky! Wake up! Kadorsky! She's burning up! Get out! Fred. Get out! Fred, wake up! Wake up! She's burning up! She's gonna hit the gun! It's all right, Fred. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. But if you put that on a crime movie, uh, it, it's fascinating. And of course, this is where so many noir films that hinge on the idea of amnesia come into play because so many of these returning soldiers have come back somehow damaged. My head hurts. I don't remember so good. Sure you remember. It's Johnny's wife we're talking about. You remember Johnny's wife, all right. Johnny. Johnny. George. George, where's Johnny? Why ain't Johnny here? He'd know I wouldn't mean to do a thing like that. No, why wouldn't you? All you had to do was grab hold of the gun, jab it against her heart, and squeeze the trigger. That's the way it was, wasn't it? The Blue Dahlia, a High Wall, Somewhere in the Night, Clay Pigeon, these are all movies that hinge on soldiers with memory loss. It's a, it's a great gimmick for a film. I just saw The Card Counter, right? Paul Schrader's new film, The Card Counter, is a contemporary version of these noir films because it's about a, a veteran who's done horrible things, who's trying to reintegrate into, into normal life, and he has really a hard time coping. And am I trying to justify what we did? No. Nothing. Nothing can justify what we did. Your father understood that. If you were there, you could understand. Otherwise, there's no understanding. So I see the card counter as being a, uh, a very uh, definitive extension of these noir films of the post-World War II era. This is our version of that today. Well, what's interesting about it, too, is you mentioned Best Years of Our Lives, which gives a, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I want to say positive sim, but it gives a very hopeful look at these soldiers reintegrating back to civilian life. And what noir does, and I think this is what makes it much more contemporary feeling, is it's, you know, it's looking at PTSD sort of before we had a label for it and acknowledging that this was maybe not something that could be easily conquered and solved with, you know, a good wife or an understanding family. And instead, it looks at it within this kind of morally ambiguous landscape where how does that come into play and create problems? And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it's, it is very interesting. There's that movie that I, I referenced, High Wall, which was made in, at MGM, of all places, in 1947. Listen to me. You're sick. Let me take you home. Steve, don't you hear me? Think of Richard. You remember Richard, don't you? You remember your own son. Think, Steve! I'm his mother! Oh, no! No! 
with Robert Taylor as a veteran who's lost his memory. There are scenes in that movie that are, are startling for how daringly they depict the misery of returning veterans, right? I mean, he, he is institutionalized and you have scenes in that movie where he's having conversations with uh, other soldiers who are still suffering from the after effects of the first world war and and they just their brains just don't function right and that was very daring to put that on screen one year after the war ended you know uh, the second world war ended uh, you know it, it wasn't something that america was necessarily ready to deal with or a picture like kansas city confidential where you know, John Payne is an ex-con, and the cops are surprised to find out that he was, you know... Pretty good soldier, too. Bronze star, purple heart. Try and buy a cup of coffee with him. Which was not the kind of attitude that you, you had uh, in, Hollywood, in Hollywood before the noir movement. I want to move on to the films that you've added to this revised edition because this kind of brings together a lot of what you do. So you were able to add some films because your Noir Foundation, which really focuses a lot on preserving noir for an, a new generation and for you know past generations to enjoy too, and you were able to find a few of these lost films and now include them in the book. And one of my favorites of the ones you listed is Too Late for Tears. Oh my God, when I saw that, that was just such a wild ride. And Lisbeth Scott and Dan Durier. And I think it has one of my favorite noir lines, which is... What do I call you besides stupid? <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty <laughs> great one, you know. Uh, and, and Dan Durier has a few good lines, you know. Don't ever change, Tiger. I don't think I'd like you with a heart. I don't think I'd like you if you had a heart, you know? <laughs> and it, it's interesting because when I was doing the book, uh, the first version of the book, I was talking to a friend of mine who had just opened a theater in Northern California. And I, this is the first time I ever met him. And I said, I'm working on this project. And he said, oh, you know, my favorite film noir is Too Late for Tears. And I was so embarrassed because I didn't know what that was. I didn't know the film. I'd never seen it, you know. So that, that's what I'm saying, Beth. It's like, so then I had to go home and go, I'm writing a book on film noir and this guy's favorite movie is one I've never seen. But then it became like the holy grail was to find this movie. And, and it's, it's just interesting because so many of the films that we pre have preserved were independently made movies, even if there were big famous people involved, you know, like Hunt Stromberg, who's one of the great producers in Hollywood history, was the producer of Too Late for Tears, but he did it as an independent film. You know, Tiger, I didn't know they made him as beautiful as you are, and as smart, or as hard. Right, and released it through United Artists, and originally Joan Crawford was going to be the star of that film. Joan Crawford and Kirk Douglas were intended to be the stars of the film. But that didn't work out, and so Elizabeth Scott and Dan Durier did it instead. But, you know, when a, when a film gets out of circulation, when it's made independently, it's usually distributed by a major studio. And there's a term on that deal, right? Like, for five years or something. 
A lot of independent producers, by the time their distribution deals expired, they were out of business. And so there's there's nobody there to protect the films, right? And so that's that's why we have to hunt these things down. And boy, Too Late for Tears was a challenge because we ended up finding about three copies. I think there was a, a kind of a battered dupe negative. There was a 35 millimeter print and there was a 16 millimeter print. And the restoration was done by by sort of cobbling, artfully cobbling all of these together, taking literally the best shot that we could find from each version and, and reassembling the whole thing. It was, I mean, that was the work of Scott McQueen at the UCLA Film and Television Archive. He oversaw that. And it was tricky because nobody knows it when they watch the film now, but when I see it, I can say, this shot of Liz Scott is a 35 millimeter. This reverse angle of Dan Duryea is from the 16 millimeter print. It was like whichever one looked sharper and clearer and, and could be enhanced, that's, that's the one we went with. So it was basically like recutting the entire film from these different sources in order to get the best version possible. And one of the other films you mentioned is one I haven't seen, but I looked up, I found a trailer, or a, I think it was just a clip, actually, but one called The Guilty, which I'm really looking forward to uncovering because it has a really good writer, uh, Cornell Woolrich, who wrote the source material for a lot of noir. But the scene I found was this morgue scene where the cop graphically describes the murder of this woman. Now listen to this. Dixon pulled down the flap. He tried to jam her body down into the chute head first. While she was still alive, he wedged her in there and broke her neck. But the chute wasn't wide enough, so he pulled her out again. See those marks on her forehead? Those aren't bruises, that's brown paint from the side of the chute. What the hell will you? He finally dragged her out and then hauled her on up to the roof where he found a barrel. So he put her in the barrel and covered her over with a gravel he'd emptied out. And even by today's standard, I thought that was a pretty brutal and uh, jolting scene to include in a film and to imagine that from like more than 50 years ago. It is pretty shocking. Every time I've shown that film to an audience, they get a little queasy. <laughs> in that scene, that's Regis Toomey uh, is the cop telling Don Castle how this woman was murdered. And it's, it's actually, that scene doesn't actually take, it seems like it's taking place in a morgue, but it's actually, he's revisiting the scene of the crime, which is uh, an incinerator shoot in an apartment building. And he's describing how the body was shoved into this incinerator. And it, as you say, Beth, it is, uh, it, yeah, it's a little gruesome. But that, that's a really good film. And that's a, an example of like what I've been so happy that we've been able to accomplish is, you know, that was an independently made film. One of the, you know, very first films produced by Jack Rather. And it's a really good adaptation of a Cornell Woolrich story. It's it's a B film and it's really grungy, and uh, it it captures that Woolrich flavor perfectly. And we're going to be putting it out on Blu-ray 
next year and it'll be on Noir Alley next year as well. So we have that to look forward to. Well, yay. (laughs) Looking forward to that. Well, one film that you did show on Noir Alley was Trapped, which you've uh, now included in the book. This isn't exactly a social call. But you are glad to see me, aren't you, Trent? That all depends. On what? On how good a partner you've been to me. I've been doing time for the two of us, remember? I gave you a chance to grow a sweet bankroll for us. Where's my share? This is, again, that point of which the behind the scenes kind of intersects with what's going on on screen, because you talked about one of the producers who was one of the seven little foys. Oh, yeah, uh, right. Brian. Working, working with gangsters to like finance movies, which, again, has this really interesting kind of like, ah, noir was on screen and maybe a little bit behind the scenes for some of these. I have always been fascinated by that. Yes, Brian Foy worked closely with Johnny Rosselli, who was a major player in the New York mob. Uh, He was like one of the only survivors to come out of the initial foray of the New York mob into Hollywood in the late 30s and early 40s. Uh, But Rosselli, you know, was just kind of a... he, He was just a player. I mean, he was like a the cartoon version of a Playboy gangster. Well, I could talk to you about noir for hours, but we don't have the time. And so I want to encourage people to get the revised version of Dark City, and then they can always find you on TCM on Noir Alley. Yes, Noir Alley, Saturday nights, Sunday mornings. And it's, it's very exciting. I'm, I'm just now putting together the schedule for next year, and it's great fun. And I, I so appreciate the fact that TCM gives me so much latitude to just choose the films that I want to show and say the things that I want to say about them. I'm just very grateful to the network and and also, you know, to the fans who have made the show so popular. I mean, I get I get such wonderful responses uh, from people. It's it's just great. So movies are doing what they're supposed to do. They're actually bringing people together. You know, I, I get all kinds of letters from people who say, you know, I watch this with my my mother or my father, and you know, they they tell stories about their childhood watching movies and things, and it, I'm, I can't tell you, Beth, how how great that makes me feel to see <laughs> that these movies about corruption and alienation and people murdering each other. Uh, bring families together. I love that. Well, they definitely brought me and my dad together. I will tell you that. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much for uh, letting me take this detour down Noir Alley with you and uh, visit one of my favorite uh, categories of film. I love noir because, uh, like I said, it they just they feel contemporary and just cynical and witty, and they're great. I enjoy them beyond beyond words well we we share that Beth and I want to thank you you're you are doing a great job uh, keeping all this alive I'm I'm well aware of the work that you are doing uh, down there in San Diego and uh, it, it's terrific and I hope to be back in your neighborhood one of these days and we'll uh, we'll put on a show Well, that wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. Noir Vember continues as I speak with Nora Fiore, the nitrate diva, about noir dames. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. 
We'll discuss some classic femme fatales, but also look beyond those lethal ladies to explore other noteworthy females, such as the lady sleuth, the glamorous victim, and the self-rescuing damsel. Discover the delicious diversity of noir dames on the next edition of Cinema Junkie. Remember to check out Cinema Junkie's companion videos from the Geeky Gourmet, because I'll show you how to make some noir desserts in glorious black and white, and how to serve up the perfect crime scene. You can find the videos and more podcasts at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. I'd like to acknowledge the talented team that makes Cinema Junkie happen. Podcast coordinator, Kinsey Moreland. Technical director, Rebecca Chacon. And director of sound design, Emily Jankowski. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.